Welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Today, we're so excited to have a guest on our podcast that is literally a visionary. He's a leader, has got a proven track record of enacting systematic social change and developing best practices in the cannabis space. That over the last two decades, he's been an activist. He's worked for a variety of initiatives and worked to make sure a variety of initiatives have passed to legalize marijuana and medical marijuana use and adult use of cannabis in San Francisco, Washington, D.C., and in the state of California. As a co-founder and advisor to Harborside Dispensary in the San Francisco Bay Area, he has been a pioneer when it comes to legal cannabis business processes, providing groundbreaking political engagement and thought leadership to the entire cannabis industry. He and his brother really are two of the stalwart, most, I think, active activists in the history of the cannabis space. So please welcome to Let's Be Blown Motel, Mr. Andrew D'Angelo. Andrew, thank you so much for being here, sir. Well, thank you for letting me on your program, Montel. It's a pleasure to be with you and your listeners today. I'm telling you, man, it's great. I think, you know, a lot of you, you've kind of always taken the backseat. Your brother's kind of been the face of Harborside and the face of the issue, but you've done so much work in this space. I, I, I don't really know where to begin. I'm going to try to begin with, I think, what is the most pressing issue today. Then we're going to back up and take a look at your history a little bit. But the pressing issue today is the COVID-19 virus, this pandemic that's going on around the country that's basically shut America down. You and your brother literally have helped to set the standard for the nation, ensuring that California made sure that they looked at cannabis and medical dispensaries as an essential service. Can you please tell me how the devil you were able to pull that off? Well, you know, we've been working in California for 20 years on political activism and in political engagement. And after 20 years, folks in Sacramento and in the local communities and here in California have begun to get the message that cannabis is something that people need for their wellness and health, as you know, Montel. And it's also something that can serve people well during a pandemic when they're locked down at home with relaxation and, and just being able to use the plant to cope, right, as a coping mechanism. So I'm, I'm thrilled that the state of California and most of the counties and municipalities, we have a little problem in San Jose, a few other places have, have prevented us from, from distributing cannabis to the people. But it's a, it's a wonderful moment that cannabis has been deemed essential by state government here in California and in a few other places across the country as well. Wait, don't, don't tell me that, that one or two holdouts, they probably still have alcohol, alcohol and liquor stores as an essential service, don't they? Yes, of course, right? We, we, we're, we're well aware of the hypocrisy and the stigma that surrounds our compound as compared to alcohol and tobacco. And, you know, clearly we still have a lot of work to do to normalize this plant and, and get people to feel safe and comfortable having it in their communities. I, just, I find that really just absolutely egregiously offensive, the fact that they will declare a, a liquor store an essential service and won't even consider you know, considering cannabis dispensaries the same way. So thank you for the hard work that you guys were doing to make sure that that happened. And you know, I think it's going to, as this progresses, 
it's going to go ahead and make a lot of the other states, if not all of them, move in the same direction. So good work on that one, sir. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, we saw at the last financial crisis, California was the only state that had legal cannabis at that time, but we saw a lot of places that didn't want medical cannabis in their community um, when they start to see their tax revenue fall and, and the economic crisis sort of take hold. They change their minds and they and they realize that cannabis is is not nearly as bad as a mortgage crisis is not nearly as bad as a pandemic and perhaps we need to rethink how we feel about having cannabis dispensaries in our community you know now, but let's talk a little bit more generally about you know how has the cannabis market and the industry been affected by the COVID 19 virus talk a little bit about that well, I mean, the impacts even to essential businesses are extreme. Um, we've, we've moved uh, a lot of our uh, transactions to delivery and to curbside pickup. The state of California very quickly allowed us to do curbside pickup. We weren't allowed to do that before. It would be very helpful if we could have banking reform and we could get credit card services and prepayments in the system. That's going to require some work by the federal government. Uh, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's every day we have to adapt to this situation and, and, and our businesses is, is, is some of our shops are doing very well right now as people stack up on the cannabis, but it takes longer for people to buy their cannabis. And, um, and certainly our delivery service has been overwhelmed with demand. And so sometimes it takes a day or two for us to get the cannabis to people. What, what we're finding is we're actually, Harborside's actually able to get cannabis to people faster and easier than some of the grocery stores and food service providers are, are able to get to people. Here in my own home, uh, I got my cannabis delivered to me in about eight hours and it took me a few days to get my fresh vegetables uh, deli delivered to me. So I think we're doing pretty good. Our job right now is to get cannabis to the people by any means necessary, and, and so we're hard at work doing that. You know, let me ask you a question, though. You, you, you said something that was really kind of very important. If, in fact, the state of California has declared cannabis as an essential service, this might be that backdoor entry into getting the state to also feel that banking and having at least, even if they put it in temporarily, as an opportunity to allow people to use credit cards because people are not allowed to go out to uh, ATM to grab cash to have it available at home. This might be an opportunity to reach out to the state legislators and see if there's a way that they can, you know, put in a temporary opportunity for some banking. Don't you think? Well, I hope so. We, we've actually tried to do that at the state level before the virus hit um, so that we could just have a more efficient transaction for consumers and we could also just <laughs> be more like a normal business. Um, most people don't use cash. Most people use some kind of digital currency and not having access to that is a real hindrance. So we were not able to get that done at the state level. It's really something the federal government's going to have to pay attention to because what happens is at the state level, even if a state allows it, what happens is the Federal Reserve will veto uh, that bank's request to open account with the Federal Reserve. So 
It's a big, complicated mess, banking is, but I do agree with you that right now, you know, we need to do our activism and political work more than ever to open up that system to us. I do believe the opportunity is there and we need to storm through that, that window that's open to us now. And, you know, the argument is 100% clear. Do you really want people handling cash during a pandemic right now? Really? You really want people going into stores when they don't have to, if they could get it delivered with a prepayment option? Really? So I think you're right. And, and, and I hope we will make progress. We'll see. There's, there's a lot of issues that public health officials have to grapple with right now. And, and we'll see if cannabis banking ends up being one of them. I will bet that this is just something that hasn't floated across the right desk in Washington, D.C. as a question. I mean, I know that seems simple. You would think that someone would have the forethought to think this through, but I will bet you that it probably hasn't in the last week or so floated across the right desk. Maybe what we need to do, as I tell you, offline from this podcast, let's uh, figure out a way that we can chat a little bit. Maybe in the next week or so, we've got, I've got some contacts in D.C. and some ways to get through to D.C. So maybe let's talk about that a little bit offline. I'd love to. Uh, your your advocacy and has been tremendous for cannabis, and I'm sure you could help with this issue. So let's do it, man. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, look, let's stay on this COVID-19 issue for a second. But now, what do you think in general? California understood. Not all of the other states understand. So what do you think COVID-19 is going to do to this industry? I was just, I did a podcast a little earlier today. And I was, I'm really taken aback where, with the fact that I believe one of the biggest impediments in our industry that still exists today is education, education, education. We have done, I believe, a great job as an industry to do a lot of B2B outreach, have worked very hard in, at setting up the business mechanisms. But we've done, I think, one of probably the worst jobs of any industry in the last 20 years when it comes to educating the consumer. I think that's where we still really are in dire need of, of, of some real emphasis and effort put into that. And so while we're now faced with this pandemic, it seems like to me this would be the perfect time. It is the perfect time for us to sit down again. Again, I'd love to work with you and your brother on this. Uh, but this would be the perfect time for us to get out there and start doing some education. People are at home. They are really just sitting back begging for content. And why not fill their space with some content like this? What do you think about that? Well, I think that you're right. Um, the cannabis industry has to do a better job with education. I, I, I've seen some groups in the last several years, Greenflower Media comes to mind, some of the work you're doing uh, comes to mind, um, that uh, some good information is out there. But there's also a lot of confusing information for consumers out there. And then you also have the added complexity of cannabis companies ha having marketing departments and marketing their products. and and sometimes hyperbole is used a little bit in that messaging and oftentimes science is, is not looked at as part of that messaging as carefully as perhaps other things are. So I agree with you. Um, right now is a, a perfect opportunity to do that. I think that if people you know, search around the internet a little bit this Monday on 420, uh, the cannabis community is actually doing more virtual 
education this 420. It's, it's, it's not just a big party in the dispensaries this year or at Hippie Hill or um, at Tompkins Square Park or the mall in Washington, D.C. We all have to be experiencing these virtually. So I think we're going to see a lot more um, uh, we're going to see a lot more education and I think we're going to see a lot more charitable fundraising. The, the industry is really stepping up to raise money for COVID-19, to raise money for Last Prisoner Project, getting people out of prison that are, are going to endanger of getting sick right now or any number of other charities and groups that are all working together this 420 to, to try to make the best of this situation. So um, I'm hopeful that this move from uh, reality into the virtual world will actually necessitate some of that education messaging you're talking about because we can't pass joints to each other anymore. <laughs> but also what I've referred from is the fact that you know, we are so focused on this virus, and that is at every level of medicine, that some of the research that was being done into just researching cannabis and cannabinoids and researching the plant has just come to a screeching halt. You know, there was a while there we were seeing almost, you know, saw a new article out almost every single day about research breakthroughs. And now all of a sudden, it breaks on because I think some of those researchers, that, which I'm glad they're doing, they're working very hard to see if they can figure out how to bring the scourge to an end. Do you think, though, when we finally get to the other side, which could be months, which could be a year, which could be a year and a half. Will some of that research come back or will people just kind of goes by the wayside? I, I, I'm just so fearful that, you know, out of sight, out of mind stays out of sight, out of mind. And how do we make sure that it doesn't? Right. I think that that's a real threat that you've just articulated. The other threat is funding, right? Because the world's going to have less economic activity. That means less funding for things like research. And so I really worry about that. Um, if, if I'm a government official and I have to allocate funds for science and I have a choice between cannabis research and figuring out a vaccine for COVID-19, I'm going to choose the vaccine every time because that's the political, that's the politics of the moment, right? So I do worry about that as well. I also, though, have a little bit of confidence because there's a lot of momentum built on cannabis research and there's a lot of people putting dollars at uh, risk so that they can develop some of these research materials. Um, I'm not real crazy about the rush to IP where everybody wants to lock up IP on, on something that's a plant medicine. I worry about that a little bit, um, but sometimes that's how this research gets paid for um, in on the back end. So I, I think it's, I'm hopeful, but I share your concern. Um, you know, the whole world is going into a coma right now, and that means cannabis research too, and, and who knows when we'll emerge from it. We tend to be farther down on the priority list than, than farther up. You know, uh, let's just do, do a favor. Let's, for those out there who are just now tuning in and may not be aware of yourself, let's take a little break and, and back up and why don't you go back and walk us through some of let's go way back man 21 years ago my brother back when you said to yourself hmm i think me stevie look the two of us ought to get together and figure out a way to do this and do this the right way do this legally that's why you became a proponent of helping to pass 
what was it, uh, Initiative 59. So let's back up. Talk about that for a little bit so people understand the history. Well, my older brother, Steve D'Angelo, is 10 years older than me, and, and he left home pretty young in life to uh, protest the Vietnam War, and he started getting into cannabis at that time and trading in cannabis. I was only about four or five years old. Uh, so in, in some respect, I grew up with cannabis because of, of Steve. Um, typically, I, I did not want to take cannabis when I was in high school. I was an athlete. I was trying to be a professional athlete in those days. That was my first big dream that I cultivated in my heart. And so I didn't take cannabis, but I got hurt uh, in high school playing sports, badly hurt. Uh, and I was in a lot of physical pain. And one day in my mom's kitchen, my brother handed me a joint and said, this is gonna make you feel better. I was about 16 years old at that time. I, a little voice in my head said, you know what? You need to hit that joint. Uh, and so I did, and not only did I feel better physically, but I felt better emotionally and spiritually. And, and the depression that I was in from my dream being over as, as a teenager, I was able to cannabis really helped me develop the courage to find another dream. And, and I, I began to realize that the, there's a whole world open to me now. And, and so my brother and I linked arms at that time, and I knew I was going to have cannabis in my life for the rest of my life. And he and I were going to work on the mission together. And, you know, this was in the 1980s. So it was a much different time then. And the war on drugs was all the rage, man. And even the Democrats were piling up, locking people up in prison and, and putting mandatory minimums on there. And it was all the rage to lock people up for cannabis. So it was a very different time. And, and we did not like being criminals. We did not like trading underground. So we took the money we made and we became activists and, and we tried to. And in fact, after quite a few years, decades of struggle, we were able to, with a lot of other people and activists, change the laws uh, in California, then Washington, D.C. And, and that sort of spread all over, all over the world now. And so you, you, you're in the trade, so you're in the cannabis business, but you don't like being a criminal, so you change the laws. And then once you're, the laws have changed, you're now a mainstream. <laughs> now you're not fringe anymore, you're mainstream, and you have to be sort of a political operative and do the political work that, that all mainstream people have to do to try to make their communities and their industries stronger and, and healthier. So it's been a 27-year mission, and sometimes we've done cannabis commerce, sometimes we've done cannabis activism, sometimes we've done cannabis culture with music and, and clothing and, and other types of storytelling. Uh, as a way of opening hearts and minds to cannabis. So that's, that's, it's all one journey, one story. And thankfully, a lot more people are listening to us now than were 30 years ago. <laughs> well, you know, now, still again, looking back in time, what really prompted you guys to open up? You, you're one of the first dispensaries in the country that has literally got grandfathered in and able to operate openly in the, the Bay Area, which is Harborside. What, what made you want to start Harborside? Well, the city of Oak, what happened in California was in 1996, we passed medical. And in that provision, there were instructions to the state legislature to regulate and license cannabis, but they refused to do that. They were too scared 
frankly, to, to start a licensing program. And so they pushed it to the local people and they said, whatever you all want to do with licensing and regulation, you can do or not do. It's up to you. Well, what happened was all these dispensaries started opening up very quickly in places like Oakland that are progressive, places like San Francisco. Those dispensaries were run by either well-intentioned activists who didn't know a lot about running a retail business or by criminal organizations that were using the law as a front to move a lot of bulk through the back door. And sometimes other bulk product other than cannabis. Well, I'm afraid that's right, right? And, and so that kind of bad behavior prompted the city of Oakland to say, hold on a second, we just can't deal with this anymore. It's an enforcement problem. It's a community problem. It's a neighborhood problem. It's out of control. We're going to license this, and we're going to limit the number of licenses, and we're going to create unofficial program. And Steve and I had been waiting a long time for that to happen because we wanted an, a license from the government that says you're allowed to sell cannabis. We're giving you an official license to do so. So we aggressively pursued the first licenses that, that Oakland issued, and we were fortunate enough to win a very complex licensing application process, and we were issued one of the first four dispensary licenses anywhere in the country here in Oakland. And we took that responsibility really seriously, and, and we wanted to be good stewards of that license, and we wanted to create a dispensary that, that, was, that was professional and that all walks of life felt comfortable in. In those days, most of the dispensaries had big plexiglass, bulletproof glass in front of them and little hole that you talk through and big security guards out front that were usually armed, and it was not a very welcoming environment to be in. And we wanted to change that, so we, we, we did. And we, we created a model that was, we were a nonprofit model in those days. And, and we not only distributed cannabis and medicine to people, but we did a lot of firsts. We started the first lab testing program for cannabis so people, patients could know what was in their cannabis, molds and pathogens and potency. Uh, we started the first childproof packaging program where we put our edibles into child resistant packaging so that when people took their edibles home they they, they felt a little more safe um, with with children in the house and we um, had free holistic health care services that we used uh, financed with some of the money we made on the cannabis so that people could come in and take a yoga class or, or, or a recce class or or learn about nutrition we felt like cannabis was just one part of the wellness lifestyle and so we want to provide other aspects of that lifestyle in our shop and so those are some of the pioneering things we did and and the, the community really responded people appreciated our free holistic health services people appreciated the lab testing even though we had to charge a little bit more for the medicine because of that lab testing cost people appreciated it and 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 now these things are, are standard operating procedures for all dispensaries and all legal programs all across the country, and I hope the world. And, and one thing we have lost with Prop 64 and sort of the adult use legalization movement is that nonprofit model. And, and, and I think that model will come back um, once sort of the exuberance of, of legalization levels off. And, and because there's a lot of people in our community who, um, are not 
driven by profit. They're, they're driven by service and they want to serve other cannabis people and they want to serve cannabis patients and they want to serve the cannabis plant and they just want to make a decent middle class living. And so I, I hope to see the nonprofit model come back into the cannabis ecosystem. I think it will. Uh, and I think it will also enable more of us to participate, not just legacy growers that have been doing this for generations, but um, people of color and equity, social equity um, uh, participants in the industry that have really been left behind. And we have to do a better job of, of creating inclusion in, in the industry. So, so that's sort of where the battle is now and, 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 and where we have to um, um, keep fighting to, to make sure everyone's a part of this uh, right now. So, so. Also, California's also demonstrated that the battle is, you know, ramping up, I think, when it comes because of this whole adult use era that we're in. It's almost as if, you know, and because of the way municipalities got involved in it, Municipalities, like you would like to say, municipalities got involved because they sought tax dollars. So now this over-exuberance to tax the hell out of legal cannabis is literally almost pushing people back into a black market world, especially in, in California. What do you think has to be done to overcome this? Well, it's, it's really not that hard to overcome it. Um, listen. 80% of cannabis transactions for the last two years since we legalized adult use have occurred in the, what I call the legacy market or the illicit market. So, and Prop 64 was supposed to have 100% of the transactions in the legal market. That was the whole point of it. That's what the promise to the voters was. And we haven't been able to do that because as you've mentioned, the state and the local people have overtaxed cannabis. And now when you walk into Harborside and buy cannabis, it's 40, 50, 60, up to 80% more expensive than in the legacy market. And when people's salaries have not gone up 40, 50, 60, 80% in the last two years in California, quite the contrary. So if you're a heavy consumer of cannabis or you're a patient and you need cannabis every single day, you have absolutely been pushed into the legacy and illicit market. How do we fix it? We have to lower the taxes. And in fact, I'd like to see a tax holiday uh, for a year or two. Uh, let's get everybody into the legal system. Let's get people under to get used to all the different products in the legal system get used to paying a little bit more for those products because they're lab tested and people can count on them to, to be safe. Uh, but let's not overtax it to the point where we drive people to the illicit market. So we have to lower the tax. The other thing we have to do is lower the barriers to entry. We have a lot of absurd regulations here in California that don't make any sense. I mean, we have these, they've, we've taken childproof packaging to a level that I can't get in the package. I, I, the, the cannabis comes to my house. I need like a chainsaw to get into the thing. Um, and, 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 and so that 
increases a lot of cost for for people and and that's just one example of and the labeling of the labeling of every industry. oh my goodness and and now you know and then they want to change the labeling every few months and then you have to have a new design and you have to have new packaging and that costs a lot of money and then you're dealing with china because that's where all the packaging is made and you know it's a mess uh and you know, we're smart people here in California. We have one party rule, the Democrats rule everything here, and we're liberal and progressive and smart. But we have not been smart when it comes to creating a legal and tax regulatory framework for cannabis. Quite the contrary, we've been pretty foolish. So I hope, you know, we've been working on fixing Prop 64 for two years. Uh, the California Cannabis Industry Association, which I helped co-found, is working hard to do it. But, you know, our political power is very fragmented here. We have a lot of trade organizations, a lot of activists, a lot of different groups. We're all competing for the same funding. We're all, we all have our own lobbyists. We, so we're very fragmented. And, and until we, we have to get our own political house in order. And I think that's not just for California, but that is nationally. I mean, I've seen it here. I'm in, I'm in Florida. I'm coming to you right now from Miami. But in Florida, Maryland, New York, New Jersey, all over the country, everybody is, is battling for their little teeny piece of python and could care less what they do to the guy next to them or the other guy. So it's that internal battle that's going to keep this industry as fragmented as it is. No, I couldn't agree more. It's really a shame because we're not doing our job. Uh, ultimately, building moats right now is stupid. The whole market is, is in the, the growth is, is, is absorbing the illicit market. That's where the hockey stick growth is. The hockey stick growth isn't finding a little section of the legal market that you can call your own, building a moat around it, and then, you know, blasting anybody who comes near it uh, that's not the way we're going to to get this done so so I mean, I've been, like i've been speaking across the country and, and and events that i've been going to lately you know it's almost i feel <laughs> i'm gonna be absolutely honest with you i feel almost ignorant when i have to stand in front of an audience of 1200 900 600 people who are in the cannabis industry and remind them that this entire industry was built on the back of patients, built on the back of people who needed it. I can remember the day when I remember seeing a person being dragged out of their home in the Bay Area on a you know, hospital bed with an IV in their arm and being arrested because a member of their family was growing some cannabis for them to use in their backyard. How dare we come into an industry right now and forget the fact that those that came before us literally paid a price and they paid that price because they wanted medicine i i'm not to be a believer that you know no matter what we want to call it call it adult use call it you know recreational use but i think anybody who makes a choice that comes to cannabis rather than some other substance is making that for medical reason anyway they may not even know and understand that it's medical reason. they feel better when they use cannabis rather than taking a shot of whiskey they feel better they get more relaxed when they come home they 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 feel less depressed. That is an underlying pre-existing medical condition. And I think that what we've got to do is see if we can get this industry taken back over by people like yourself, people like your brother, people who are out here working to ensure that they took the patient off the battlefield. 
Well, Montel, from your lips to God's ears, man, um, uh, absolutely. And I'm glad you're speaking that way to people. Steve and I are doing that at that same, We, you know, there's a lot of investors, there's a lot of business people, very sophisticated business people coming into the industry right now. They're not in touch with that history. They're not in touch with the patients. They're not in touch with the war on cannabis and black people people of color they have no clue of what harry anslinger did and 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 ronald reagan and nancy reagan they don't have a clue as to why this disparity exists the reason why you know they don't want to exonerate and 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 completely remove this from people's you know uh, uh background especially in some states where you know they've asked to to expunge people's records. They don't want to do this. Oh my goodness, this gave them also open license to put people who are brown or darker shades of white in jail. They don't want to lose that opportunity to have an excuse to lock the person up of color. This is another form of slavery that no one will admit to. And until we get them to admit to it, we're going to be in the same position. It's like, I can't understand how, you know, states that have now legalized, even when it comes to an adult use step, have the audacity to still be holding people in their prisons in their state who were arrested for the same substance. No, I, I, by the grace of God, I'm not sitting in prison for a life sentence. My brother's not sitting in prison for a life sentence by the grace of God and probably the color of my skin. So that's one reason we're working to get people out of prison right now. And that's the last prison project, prison project, correct? Right? Yes, the last prisoner project. We we started that nonprofit about a year ago, and we're not the only people working on social justice and prison reform. All kinds of important people, even Kim Kardashian, is working on this. So, so a lot of people are working on this, and 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 it's long overdue. We have two and a half million people locked up uh, in this country. We have forty thousand people locked up for cannabis that we know of, and. Now we have have been arrested millions of years, not just arrests, but if you go back a hundred years of prohibition, millions of years of human life have been caged because of cannabis. Literally millions of years of human life have been taken away from people. And that's a very serious thing, right? So so we have an obligation, those of us that are in the legal industry, those of us that are making money in the legal industry, particularly those that are new in our industry, that are sophisticated business people and investors that are going to make an awful lot of money on this. Those folks have a moral obligation to get these people out of prison and to reintegrate them into society and to hire them in their cannabis company so that they can have a good paying job when they're done serving their time, which they should have never had to serve in the first place. Absolutely. And then, okay, but again, let's talk about, explain the project, the last prisoner project, explain what that is. So people... Yes, the last prisoner project, what we, we do three things. One, clemency two, expungement, and three, reintegration and advocacy. So 
the first thing we do is we try to convince governors to grant clemency, like Michael Thompson. Michael Thompson has served 26 years in prison in Michigan for a few pounds of weed he sold. It was his third strike. He's going to die in prison if we don't get him out. We have a clemency petition at the governor's desk right now. People can go to lastprisonerproject.org. They can sign our petition. They can make a small donation, and we can get Michael Thompson out of prison now. Uh, so we do clemency. We also do expungement. As you mentioned, some states have made it easier to expunge cannabis records. Some states have not done that. And so we advocate to, to legal states to encourage them to streamline their expungement processes for cannabis convictions. And then once we get somebody out and once we get their record expunged, we try to reintegrate them into society. So we have a program with a multi-state operating cannabis company called Harvest, and they're going to uh, fund an educational program so that when you get out of prison, you go into an educational program with LPP and Harvest, you get training, and then Harvest uh, hires you in their dispensary or their farm, uh, their vertically integrated company, and they give you a job in the industry so that you can uh, get out of prison and be employed. So that's what, those are the three main things that Last Prisoner Project does on a daily basis. Uh, our organization is run by two amazing women, uh, Sarah Gersten and Mary Bailey, and they're terrific. And Steve and I, you know, we travel around advocating and speaking and, and trying to raise funds for the Last Prisoner Project, doing a bunch of events on 420. So. Um, we've got some nice momentum built and, and the urgency couldn't be more right now with COVID-19. So we're working hard to get people out. Give out that website so people who want to, who want to make a donation know where to go. Lastprisonerproject.org. Lastprisonerproject.org. And feel free to reach out to me in my office and let's see if we can work together to do that. I'm, I'm going to be working on right now with a kind of, uh, I, I can... I'm in the process of putting together an initiative with an extremely influential person in this space. Can't talk about it yet because you know we're not signed up. But when we're signed up, you know, I'm, I'm planning on doing a a series of specials about very special people who have been incarcerated across the country when it comes to in this space, so that we can start putting eyes in this. I think you know when you start opening up people's minds when they get an opportunity to look at you know, a story and they can feel, you know, that story visually and they can feel it through, you know, the media, that's what opens up a person's heart. And when we open up hearts, we get change to happen. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear you say that because we've been trying to get some cameras into prisons. We've been trying to interview folks and tell their stories and, and any help that you can provide, we'll certainly take that offline and talk about it because... I can talk about prisoners all day long, and so can my brother, and so can you. But when somebody hears from Michael Thompson himself, or Leland Dodd, or any of our constituents, and actually hears their story, or hears from their family members, or their children, or their wives, or husbands, um, it really hits home. And and that's that's what changes hearts and minds. Absolutely. You know, we have a well, we have a you you and I, Stevie, haven't worked together as much as we probably should have over the last ten years. I want that to come to an end. Reach out. Yes, man. Absolutely. You'll as soon as we get off this call, I'll be engaging my team to reach out to your team. Absolutely. Yeah, I think if we can make a difference, we truly can. 
Well, I think you and us, we already have. And, and despite how frustrating it may be in our industry right now, and despite the challenges and despite the difficulties, we've come so far uh, and, and we have uh, such promise in front of us. The cannabis renaissance is alive and well, and we're all a part of it. And um, it's, 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 it's been a lot of achievement up to this point. We, we, we still have a long, long way to go, but we should feel proud that we've, we've gotten uh, everything to this point. And well, let's talk a little bit about where we are going. Let's talk about where we go. Where do we go next? I mean, over the next, what do you, if you had a crystal ball, what do you see the next, yeah, I'm going to have to say it in two year increments because heck, this coronavirus crap may not be, we may not see the other side of this for at least another year. Yeah. So let's talk about the next two years. See, I really still believe that along with educating people about the, you know, the, the huge chasm in the haves and the have-nots of the space, meaning those that are still in prison and those who are out here working in the industry. Along with that, I still really truly believe the second we educate the masses, the second they get the education they need to go into a doctor's office and demand, the second you get doctors and more doctors on our side. Take a look at what's been happening in the last three years, even in the last year. The fact that we've identified that there's an endocannabinoid system, which blows my mind, we've been talking about this for the last 20 years, yet only in the last three years have doctors all of a sudden, bing, light bulb goes off in their head, and they act like they got some new information. But, okay, let's satisfy, be satisfied with that. They have new information. So now they're talking about the endocannabinoid system. We have the country talking about the fact that you were born genetically with a system inside of your body to make you need for cellular homeostasis cannabinoids in your system. Finally, doctors are starting to get at least one class out of all of their time in college about the endocannabinoid system. That happened in the last three years. It took us three years to get there. I'm going to say, though, I've spoken to organizations where, then again, there have been consumers in the audience who look at me with a with a face like what? There's an end of what? What, yeah. what is that? So we need to do a little bit more educating them. And I think right now is the time to do it. We need to educate them about the fact of why cannabis works as well as it does. Two, we can educate them on the fact that there's been such a a just criminal attitude towards cannabis, not criminal because of using it criminal by our legislators and criminalizing. Education is what we need now, but what do you think is going to happen over, let's say, the next year, then the next year after that? Where do you think we're going? Well, I think, you know, I think that the, the science of cannabis might get caught up in the virus a little bit. Things might slow down on the science of cannabis and some of the studies of, of cannabis, but there's already been so many studies completed. There's already been so much science done. I'm not sure we need that much more of it to be able I, to. I mean, you're, you're, you and I, are, you're like we're preaching to the choir. Yeah, it's like, I, I mean, how much more do we need before we can say, we conclude this is good? <laughs> um, Start with one, you know, back in the fact it was 1998, you know, uh, the, the, the federal government filed for its own patent. Yeah. And yeah. 
holds in its patent abstract exactly the value that they find in cannabinoids and then gave himself a patent in 2002. Are you kidding me? What? And people right. still know that. Yeah, no, I mean, it, 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 people, I think, sometimes are a little bit naive when it comes to this sort of thing and, and they, they extend trust perhaps to the government <laughs> uh, in ways they, they shouldn't. Um, um, but in any case, I think that we are going to continue to make progress. I don't see the genie getting put back in the bottle over the course of the next year or two. Reform might get slowed down as, as we deal with corona and, and people's attention and, and leaders and, and science and, and all the rest of society has to deal with this. Um, but and I think we'll adapt, you know, it will adapt in terms of the way we get cannabis to people. I think the products will adapt. I think we'll see a lot of innovations in non-inhaled cannabis. Anything you inhale with a respiratory virus going around, I think is, is, is not going to have as much creativity in it as things that you don't inhale. So I see a, a lot of innovation on edibles and tinctures and capsules and you know, anything that's a, a non-inhalation form of cannabis, I think that's going to grow. Um, and I think that places that have gotten legalization done will be able to grow those markets and, and as, as, as people start to, to come out of hibernation a little bit, I think that, that, that cannabis is going to be a big part of I think we'll just continue to grow, right? Um, um, more and more people will come out of the cannabis closet. More and more people will feel comfortable going into a legal cannabis business. More and more communities, at, particularly as they are under financial stress, um, will realize that, hey, you know what? A choice between legal cannabis and a global economic depression, ah, we'll take legal cannabis, right? It's not as big a threat as a global economic depression uh, or of dying from a virus. So, so when, when real threats surface in society, the threats that are built on lies like cannabis prohibition tend to fall pretty quick like a house of cards. Uh, so I see that happening, Montel. Honestly, I think we'll, we'll you know, this crisis may actually accelerate reform uh, in some ways. We may have to be in more pain than we are today for that to happen, but I could see this accelerating uh, reform. But I also think that everything we do in society is going to take more time. Uh, scoring cannabis is going to take more time. Scoring groceries takes more time. Going to get uh, annual physical checkup in the middle of a pandemic is going to take more time. Uh, going to the post office takes more time. So everything is going, once we emerge from this coma, everybody's going to be kind of moving in this physically distant, slow motion reality uh, until we figure out how to adapt to that and, and, and allow the economy to, to pick up some steam. So um, I see lots of edibles and non-inhaled products. Uh, I see more reform, maybe not in the short term, but certainly the mid term. Uh, I'm, we may see some movement on banking in the next two years, um, maybe in the next two months, man, who knows? 
Uh, it, it, a lot of it will depend on how all of this unfolds. It's, it's still very, very early in, in this crisis we're dealing with. And we haven't dealt with one of these in 100 years, certainly not in modern age. And really hard to, 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 to have a crystal ball that, that's clear. Uh, right now. But those are some of the things I see. Uh, uh, I also see a lot of cannabis businesses failing, frankly, in the next two years um, um, until we get some of these structural impediments uh, and taxes and regulations and stuff sorted out. Uh, I think we'll see more extinction events. And we may see a little bit more empowerment of the legacy market as those extinction events occur. People aren't going to stop taking cannabis. They're going to get it from a harbor side or a Montel, or they're going to get it from their dealer that they've been getting it for a long time down the street. So, but they're going to get it one way or the other. And I just hope we're smart about it and we can do that in a way that doesn't spread virus and, and that creates one big legal market for all of us to participate in. Now let's just let's hope and pray that we get the patient off the battlefield. Look, yeah. Andrew, thank you enough for being a part of this today, my friend. Honestly, I, I, I wish you and your brother well. I, I have to say it publicly, you guys have literally been the stalwart force in this entire industry, and the industry owes you a debt. And a big thank you. Well, that's very kind for, for you to say. The journey is the joy. And all of us together walking on this path is what makes Steve and I wake up every morning excited. So thank you for having me on. Absolutely, sir. Well, even listening to Lefty Montel, our guest today, Mr. Andrew D'Angelo, who is one of the founders of Harborside. Make sure if you're in the Bay Area, you go by Harborside for your cannabis needs. I'm thanking you so much for being a part of the show today, guys. Make sure you tune in to the next Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Mm-hmm.